Open your Bibles to Psalm 90, the 90th Psalm. I want to read this entire psalm for us and then dial in on one specific prayer request that Moses makes in the center of this psalm that I think will serve us well on this last Sunday and by God's providence, the last day of 2017. Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You've swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath, we have been dismayed. You've placed our iniquities before you, our our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we've seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. It's an amazing psalm that we need to turn full attention to at a future date. But for this morning, I want to have a reflection with you, looking back, looking forward on how we should come to the end of a year. At the center of this psalm of Moses is a request made of God that I think is most appropriate for us to think about, to consider, to ponder on this last Sunday of the year's, actually the last day, as you know. Moses asks in verse 12, he asks of God, teach us to number our days so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. This is a prayer to God. It's an interesting prayer. It's a prayer for wisdom, but not just any application of wisdom. It's a prayer for wisdom so that we would consider life and consider the future. Every single day that God's given us to measure it, to count it, to value it. The whole world... This last week and today and tonight, the whole world is going to be doing what we call New Year's resolutions, right? 
It's an interesting phenomenon. There's this internal sense that we should change or, or, or improve or, or augment or diminish things in our lives. Moses provides us as children of God another way to think about resolve in a, in a new year, though. Let me ask you a question that you might not expect. Not what New Year's resolutions are you making or have you made. What did you make last year? Can you remember your New Year's resolutions that you made at the end of 2016 and how different this last, this year, the coming year, this last year was going to be? Do you remember them? Did you accomplish them? I mean, have you ever really thought about what New Year's resolutions are? They're commitments that we make to ourselves to change. They're commitments that we make to ourselves that are a tacit admission of our need for self-improvement. Aren't they? Isn't every New Year's resolution at the heart this cry for admission for self-improvement? We need help. We need to change. We want to change. There's nothing wrong with that. But instead of asking what are our New Year's resolutions, I want to ask the more probing question from Moses this morning. What are your greatest needs for self-improvement? How can we count and observe and number our days in such a way that we can present to God the wisdom that we have looked at life and lived it appropriately and properly. And if you look at the context, that's in the light of the coming judgment. His anger, his fury, his coming wrath, his accounting that he'll bring us to. So for a Christian, the question comes with a pre-baked answer. We want to glorify God more and better, right? Our New Year's resolution should be, we want to glorify God more and glorify God better and glorify God more specifically. But how can we do this? How can we please our Savior, be more faithful to his mission, fight the sin that displeases him? How can we truly do this? little background. When I was in seminary, I heard a lecture by John uh, Piper in which he was saying that his life had been incredibly marked by a challenge that one of his professors, Dan Fuller, had given him. And basically it was this, find a good, solid, evangelical, orthodox, solid, conservative, dead theologian. And commit your life as kind of a side study alongside and subordinate to God's word. Commit your life to studying this theologian, this this man of God, this theology that's put out. And then begin to dissect it, assess it, disagree with it, agree with it. Instead of just spreading your mind all over everything, and it's good to read broadly, make sure to find someone that you can read deeply and completely. Well, if you know much about John Piper, you know that he chose who? Jonathan Edwards. And, and I did too. And the reason for that was a bit of pride. I had just read in church history uh, uh, a long treatise by Jonathan Edwards, uh, The End for Which God Created the World. And it was really helpful in places. But I read that thing as slow as Christmas. It was hard. And I remember thinking, this, this shouldn't be this hard. I'm, I'm getting a master's in 
in theology. I, I should learn how to understand this guy. So I began to adopt the reading Jonathan Edwards more and more week in and week out. And he became to me a historical hero. But I want to confess to you the, the man who really began to influence me even more with that came about by accident. And really, as I look back, he's become a man to whom I look to as my, my old dead brother or a father figure. I read a little pamphlet given to me called Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Ryle, which led me to read his book on holiness, which read, led me to read about everything I could put my hands on by J.C. Ryle. John Charles Ryle, an amazing man. I, I'll give you a full biography maybe of him later. Um, he was, lived 1816 to 1900. He was a contemporary, by the way, and interacted with Charles Spurgeon. They were both pastors in England. He was in the Anglican denomination. Spurgeon was Reformed Baptist. Ryle was the eldest son to a very prominent politician and philanthropist who was, who was very wealthy in the community. All of London knew his father. Ryle himself was a budding politician who had all but given a promise that he would serve in parliament. He was good looking, a star athlete, an excellent student. He had everything and everything was going for him. Then unexpectedly, his father had a very public bankruptcy. And in a day, literally a day, J.C. Ryle lost everything that was important to him. He lost his political future. He lost his reputation. He lost his rich lifestyle. He lost his friends. He was devastated and he was humiliated. And by God's sweet providence, that led him to devote his life to the only thing he had left, which was God. And he became a pastor. An extraordinary man with many gifts, incredible intelligence. And he applied that for Christ and Christ's body as an evangelical Anglican minister. And his life didn't get any easier after that. He would marry three times. His first two wives died very young and very early in, in their marriages. ongoing church people, church problems, people complaining, people leaving, people uh, saying he wasn't what he, what, uh, he should be. And he, he has just this, this litany, this diary of complaints. And I look at my own life and ministry and say, I don't know anything of his sorrows. I cannot recommend highly enough Ian Murray's recent biography on J.C. Ryle called Prepared to Stand Alone. Maybe if you want to email Kathy this week, she can give you these, this bibliographic information. Prepared to Stand Alone by Ian Murray. Or you can get, there's a shorter volume, Faithfulness and Holiness, The Witness of J.C. Ryle by J.I. Packer. It has a very small biography on Ryle and then the text of his famous book, Holiness, after that. You can read Holiness by J.C. Ryle, Thoughts for Young Men. These are all PDA for free on the internet. My favorite is Light from Old Times, which has been republished by Banner of Truth called Five English Reformers, which looks at 
The gospel that these men held precious and then died being burnt at the stake for these truths. Beyond writing full-length books, though, J.C. Ryle often, weekly, would write what was called tracts, T-R-A-C-T-S, tracts. They were basically written sermons. There was no internet, no blogosphere. And in order to disseminate thoughts and ideas, tracts were written. And he wrote many dozens of tracts, short papers that addressed issues, theology, biblical texts. They were distributed all over the United Kingdom and eventually made their way to America and all the way around the world. One of those tracts I regularly read every year at this time. It's intended to be read the week before New Year's Day. It's a tract on preparing for the new year. It is powerful. It is convicting. Every time I read it, I'm humbled by it. And for our time together this morning, I want to share with you his outline of this paper and add my own thoughts as we head into the new year tomorrow. So, Full disclosure, I am plagiarizing J.C. Ryle. But I guess if I'm giving him credit, it's not really plagiarizing. He begins his paper. It's, by the way, it's called, you can download it for free online. It's called, Are You Ready? He says, I ask you a plain question at the beginning of this new year. Are you ready? It's a solemn thing to part company with the old year. It is still more solemn to bring, to begin a new one. It is like entering a dark passage. We know not what we may meet before the end. All before us is uncertain. We know not what a day may bring forth, much less what may happen in a year. Reader, he asks, are you ready? It's interesting how he talks about a new year, not like the world talks about New Year's resolutions. Instead of proposing resolutions for self-improvement, Ryle asks five questions that indicate our readiness for the uncertainties that await us in the coming year. So I'm going to go through these questions with you, with Mr. Ryle, and, and notice that these, are, these questions are passive. They're intended to say, what are you going to do about what's going to happen that's outside of your control? New Year's resolutions are typically given about all you can change that's within your control. Ryle says, no, no, no. If you want to prepare for the coming year, you need to be ready for those things that you have no control over at all. Five questions to prepare for a new year. I'll just ask these with Mr. Ryle. Five questions to prepare for a new year. His first question is this. Are you ready for sickness? Of all the New Year's resolutions I've heard people talk about this week, I haven't heard one that said, I am going to resolve to be ready to be sick very sick. Never heard that. Ryle says, are you ready for sickness? You cannot expect always to be well. That's a great quote. You cannot expect to be well always. You have a body fearfully and wonderfully made. It is, an awful, it is awful to think how many diseases may assail it. Then he quotes this, uh, this uh, poem. Strange that a harp of a thousand strings should keep in tune so long. Thinking about all the intricacies of our, our bodies. I have a doctor friend in California uh, who's an oncologist. And he says what people usually, what most people don't understand is that the human body develops cancer every day. Every moment, every hour. 
cancer cells, rogue cells are always being, being uh, produced in your body, but cancer gets its, its catch when, when your body doesn't know how to fight them anymore. He says, pain and weakness are a hard trial. They can bow down the strong man and make him like a child. They can weary the temper and exhaust the patience and make men cry in the morning. Would God that it were evening, they say. And in the evening, would God that it was the morning. All this may come to pass this very year. Your reason may be shattered. He speaks of our mental health. Your reason may be shattered. Your senses may be weakened. Your nerves may be unstrung. The very grasshopper may become a burden. Reader, if sickness comes upon you, are you ready? I was reading this this last week and came to mind a very dear friend of Kim and me just found out a couple weeks ago that she has serious, aggressive, non-smoker's lung cancer that's metastasized into her brain. It's incurable, and the prospects look like this will be her front porch to heaven. In talking to her husband, what was most interesting and shocking and alarming to me is he said, the day before she went to the doctor, everything was fine. I was speaking with a common friend to this, this friend who's sick, my friend Jerry Ragg, who's a very dear friend of our church, about this friend. And he said something to me that was, that was like a punch in the stomach and a wake-up call at the same time. He said, Rick, we're getting to the age where this kind of news is going to become more and more commonplace. Ryle is asking us if we are ready for that dreaded meeting with the doctor where he or she gives us very unwelcome news. It's a sobering thought. What if you get sick minimally or seriously this year? Are you ready for that? Let me ask it another way. Do you have a theology for sickness? Do you know how to think theologically about problems with your body? We know Romans 8.28 says, says that God causes how many things? How many? All things to work together for what? For what? For good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Does your theology interpret sickness as somehow a mysterious gift of God's goodness? Well, that all depends on how you define good, right? Do you believe that God is the cause of his own glory through the sicknesses that we encounter? He asks a second question. Are you ready for affliction? Kind of builds on that. Affliction, trials, problems. Ryle says, are you ready for affliction? Man, says the scripture, is born to sorrow. 
This witness is true. Your property may be taken from you. Your riches may make themselves wings and fly away. Your friends may fail you. Your children may disappoint you. Your servants may deceive you. Your character may be assailed. Your conduct may be misrepresented. Troubles, annoyances, annoyances, vexations, anxieties may surround you on every side like a host of armed men. Wave upon wave may burst over your head. You may feel worn and worried and crushed to the dust. Reader, Ryle says, if affliction and trial comes upon you, are you ready? We spent a few weeks working through Romans chapter 5, but let me remind you, in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says, We exult, we, we, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the longing for heaven. And then right after that, he says, Not only this, but we also rejoice in our tribulations. How in the world can anyone rejoice in affliction or tribulation? How can we do that? The next word tells us, Knowing. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance brings about proven character. Proven character brings about hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Paul is saying, Do you have a theology for trials and suffering and affliction? Not if, but when the trials come this year or next. Do we have a theology waiting for them? Can we smile at our afflictions and say, I understand what's happening here? How many times have we said it? We ask three questions. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? What do I know? That's what Paul says, knowing what God is doing. Consider it all joy, my brethren, not if, but when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, James says. Do you have a theology for trials that may come this year? Financial trials, relational trials, parenting trials, marital trials. Does your theology have a category and a protocol and a plan for not only engaging in these trials, but growing from these trials? I think we spend so much time often trying to get out of what God's good providence has put us into for our own growth. Are you ready for affliction? Third question he asks, are you ready for bereavements? This one struck me hard. Are you ready for bereavements? You say, what is a bereavement? It's the loss of a friend or a family member, someone you love. Are you ready for bereavements, Ryle says? No doubt there are those in the world that you love. There are those whose names are graven on your heart and around whom your afflictions are entwined. There are those who are the light of your eyes, the very sunshine of your existence, but they are mortal. Any one of them may die this year. Before the daisies blossom again, any one of them may be lying in the tomb. 
Your Rachel may be buried. Your Joseph may be taken from you. Your dearest idol may be broken. Bitter tears may, and deep mourning may be your portion. Before next December, you may feel terribly alone, he says. Reader, if bereavement comes upon you, are you ready? You know, I thought about that. How different would my, how different would our relationships be with someone if we knew they were going to die this year? In January? Before next Sunday? This afternoon? If we knew that, how differently would that shape our, our interactions? How would your evangelism be motivated if you knew that someone you knew was going to face eternity sooner than they thought? Your coworkers, your neighbors, your family members. How would that change our parenting if we knew that one of our children would meet the Lord this year? How would that change our conversations and our focus with our friends how would it change your relationship with your spouse if you knew they would die this year? That leads to a fourth question that you had to know was coming. Are you ready for death? Your, your death. Ryle says, are you ready for death? It must come someday. Just stop right there. It must come someday. Don't we live in this kind of shadow world in our mind that, well, death someday to someone else, but not me and not soon. It must come someday. It may come, your death may come this year, Ryle says. You cannot live always. This very year may be your last. You have no freehold in this world. You have no, not such so much as even a lease on it. You are nothing better than a tenant at God's will. Your last sickness may come upon you and give you notice to quit. The doctor may visit you and exhaust his skill over your case. Your friends may sit by your bedside and look graver and graver every day. You may feel your own strength gradually wasting and find someone, something saying within, I shall not come down from this bed, but die here. You may see the world slipping from beneath your feet and all your schemes and plans suddenly stopped. You may feel yourself drawing near to the coffin and the grave and the worm and the unseen world and eternity and God. Reader, Ryle says, if death should come upon you, are are you ready? I've come to believe that one of my primary responsibilities as your pastor is to constantly remind you of and prepare you for your death. I have an equal conviction to always be preparing my own heart for that great day. 
I think the best passage that we can look at to do that is Philippians 1.21. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Profit, good, better. I think that's the simplest, most concise theology for life and death. Because the only person who can truly look at death as gain is the one to whom living is Christ. Again, Jesus is not be a part of our lives, but the point of our lives. I'm just reminded on and on, death is no respecter of age. Jonathan Edwards, in his ninth resolution of his famous 70 resolutions, said this, and he wrote this as a 19-year-old. Resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death, end quote. In other words, he's saying, I want to think as often as I can about that I'm going to die and the many ways that I could die. Boy, I just wonder if there's more ways today to die than even then. His 52nd resolution, he says, I frequently hear persons, this is insightful, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would love to have lived if they were to live their lives over again. I'm resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to an old age, end quote. That's humbling. I think Ryle and Edwards are trying to wake us up from this thought someday. Someday I'll get my marriage where it should be. Someday I'll disciple my children. Someday I'll have my quiet time. Someday I'll read that book. Someday I'll, someday I will, someday I will. James 5 says we don't, we don't have a promise of tomorrow. All we have is today. If I could get on my knees and beg you and it would make a difference, I would do it this morning and say, please, someday and tomorrow are the devil's days. Today is the Lord's. Do you have a theology for your own death? You say, end of the year, New Year's resolutions, happy times, is this really what we should be thinking about? If you think about it properly, then you can be happy. Do you have a theology, a category, a process for thinking about your own last breath on this planet? We often hear people who are aware of their impending death getting their affairs in order, making sure their insurance is up to speed. I, heard, I read an article recently that said make sure that your, your spouse or those of you who care about you know your passwords to everything if you were to die in a car crash suddenly. It was really good advice, actually. We want to get all of our affairs in order for when we're gone for how the affairs impact here. What about getting the affairs of our soul ready to meet Almighty God and not believe the lie that we can get ready for that someday? just wonder how many funerals I'll do this year. I wonder if you might attend mine this year. 
I have a few songs I want you to sing at that, if that's the case. And I love number five. I love number five. Are you ready for the coming of Christ? Are you ready? Should Jesus return today or this year? Ryle says, are you ready for the second coming of Christ? He will come again to this world one day. As surely as he comes the first time, he says, 1,800 years ago, we can add 150 years to that. So surely he will come the second time. He will come to reward all his saints who have believed in him and confessed him upon the earth. He will come to punish all his enemies, the careless, the ungodly, the impenitent, the unbelieving. He will come very suddenly at an hour when no man thinks he will come. As a thief comes in the night, he will come in terrible majesty. In the glory of his Father, with his holy angels, a flaming fire shall go before him. The dead shall be raised, the judgments shall be set, the books shall be opened. Some shall be exalted into heaven. Many, very many, shall be cast down to hell. The time for repentance shall be past. Many will cry, Lord, Lord, open to us but find the door of mercy closed forever. After this will be no more change. Dear reader, if Christ should come in the second, his second time in this year, are, are you ready? Where is the return of Jesus in your theology? When's the last time, get this, you didn't just think that he might come, but ask him to hurry. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, Maranatha, it means Lord, come quickly. Come now. The only person who can say, Lord, come quickly is the one who's ready to meet the Lord. It is a self-purifying aspiration to look for the coming the second coming of Jesus. Do you believe he's coming? Remember what Peter says in 2 Peter 3? Some people doubt that he's gonna come because he hasn't come yet. And it's been a long time. Peter was writing in his own lifetime. It's been so long. Where is his coming, they say? You know what his answer is? His answer in 2 Peter 3 is the same that we read in Psalm 90. A thousand years, snapping in the air for the Lord. He doesn't look at time the same way that you and I do. We don't talk enough about the return of the Lord. Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. He's coming, his robe is dipped in blood, and he will judge. He will reign, and he will reward those who have looked for his appearing. Revelation 22, read verses 12 through 20. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. Verse 20, yes, I am coming quickly. And then John says, amen, come, Lord Jesus. Is the thought of Christ something that you hear about and say, hurry, hurry? Come today. Come today, Lord. Or is there a problem? 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 talks about this problem. Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, he comes again, 
we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Ryle says, these are solemn questions, reader. They ought to make you examine yourself. They ought to make you think. It would be a terrible thing to be taken by surprise by these questions. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, he writes. But shall I leave you there? No, I will not do so. Shall I raise the searchings of the heart and not set before you the way of life? And again, remember, these questions are, are, are passive. They're looking at what might happen to us and having a theology ready for them, not what people typically do with New Year's resolutions and trying to exercise their own will over the life, over the life and future. So let's change gears. Now he says this. I want to give you three marks of spiritual readiness for a new year. These are the questions that kind of freak us out and scare us. Then he gives three points at the end of this little paper, this tract, that are so encouraging. Three marks of spiritual readiness for a new year. Number one, he that is ready has a ready Savior. I love this. So good. He that has a ready, he that is ready, Ryle says, has a ready Savior. Has Jesus ever, he has Jesus rather, ever ready to help him? He lives the life of faith in the Son of God. He's found out his own sinfulness and fled to Christ for peace. He's committed his soul and all its concerns to Christ's keeping. If he has bitter cups of affliction to drink, he knows that they are mixed by the hand that was nailed to the cross for his sins. Is that powerful? Listen to that again. <laughs> Rahul says, he's committed his soul and all his concerns to Christ's keeping. And if he has a bitter cup of affliction to drink, he knows that they are mixed. These afflictions are mixed by the hand that was nailed to the cross for his sins. If he's called to die, he knows that the grave is the place where the Lord lay, if those whom he loves are taken away, he remembers that Jesus is the friend of the sick and closer than a brother. He's a husband who never dies. If the Lord should come again, he knows that he has nothing to fear. The judge of all will be that very Jesus who has washed his sins away. Happy is the man who can say the Lord was ready to save me, he says. We have a ready Savior. He, what do we learn in Romans 8? If God is for us. Who can be against us? He is ready to come to our aid. He is willing. Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4 said he lived a life surrounded by sin so he could under, and temptation to understand our own affliction. Number two, he that is ready has a ready heart. Ryle says, he's been born again and renewed the spirit of his mind. The Holy Spirit has shown him the true value of all here below and taught him to set his affections on the things above. The Holy Spirit has shown him his own deserts and made him feel that he ought to be thankful for everything and satisfied with any condition. If affliction comes upon him, his heart whispers, there must be a need for this. I deserve correction. It is meant to teach me some useful lesson. If bereavement comes upon him, his heart reminds him that the Lord gave and the Lord must take away whenever he sees fit. 
And if death draws near in his heart, he says, my times are in your hand. As you will and when you will and where you will, O Lord. If the Lord should come and his heart would cry, this is the day I've longed and prayed for, for the kingdom of God has come at last. Blessed is he who has a ready heart. Not someday, but today. And then lastly, he says, he that is ready has a ready home, a home ready, rather, for him in heaven. Ryle says, the Lord Jesus has told him that he has gone to prepare a place for him. Just just meditate on that. Our Lord is making your bed. He's getting your room ready. He can bear disappointments because he knows his greatest happiness is somewhere else. He concludes his paper with these words. Be merciful to your own soul, dear reader. Have compassion on that immortal part of you. Do not neglect its interests for the sake of mere worldly objects. Business, pleasure, money, politics will soon be done away with forever. Do not refuse to consider the question I ask you. Are you ready? And then he asks it again. Are you ready? Final few sentences I want to read. We included in your bulletin today. We've placed it in there. It's a quote that I thought you might want to meditate on later. Ralph says, walk more closely with God this year. Get nearer to Christ. Seek to exchange hope for assurance. Seek to feel the witness of the Spirit more closely and distinctly every year. Lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets you. Press toward the mark more earnestly. Fight a better fight and war a better warfare every year you live. Pray more, read more, mortify self more, love the brethren more. Oh, that you may endeavor to grow in grace every year, that your last things may be far more than your first and the end of your Christian course far better than the beginning. How do we do this? We walk by faith and we're not distracted by sight, what we see.